YouTube throws songs at us that it thinks we'll like. And not long ago, it gave me For a Dancer by Jackson Brown on an old fuzzy video of a tribute concert for Lowell George of Little Feet, who was one of the great music talents of my generation and lived too recklessly and died too young. Brown wrote For a Dancer for someone else who had died too young. It's a lament. I don't remember losing track of you. You were always dancing in and out of view. I must have thought you'd always be around, always keeping things real by playing the clown. Now you're nowhere to be found. It's a beautiful song, the prettiest Jackson ever wrote, in my opinion. This is a funeral for a dancer. His church and its school were Caroline's stage when she was young. As dancers go, her form wasn't willy-nilly. It was trained, precise, stretching for perfection. She was a ballerina. Bernard Taper, writing on ballet, calls it an ancient code of movement, striving for a particular kind of beauty. I would like to show, George Balanchine once said, that these bodies of ours, which most of the time are used for dull and ordinary things, can be beautiful, really beautiful. The purpose of the classical technique was to realize the grandeur and grace that was potential in the human form. But, as Balanchine also used to say, first comes the sweat and then the beauty, if you're very lucky and have said your prayers. Children grow up and off they go. Caroline left her stage here at the appropriate time and pirouetted off to college at Westminster and then on to life, marriage, motherhood, in but mostly out of view from here. Some years ago, I spoke at the funeral at a Catholic church of a young man who had died from an addiction. His parents are good friends of mine and were heartbroken. I hope you won't mind if I share with you a portion of what I said on that occasion. In baptism, Catholic priests ask candidates this question. Do you reject the glamour of evil and refuse to be mastered by sin? The glamour of evil. When I heard that, I thought, now that puts a finger on the problem. There's a scene in the movie Almost Famous. The year is 1973, which is meaningful to me as my senior year in high school. A young man's mother drops him at a concert because he is not yet quite old enough to drive. For him, this is already an embarrassing situation. After he leaves the car, walking away towards the crowd, the music, the lights, the freedom, his mother behind him shouts, don't do drugs. In the audience, we laugh, and some of us both laugh and cringe because we have seen ourselves in both the mother and the boy. Having been on both sides of that situation, we know that from the mother's side, this is a desperate, knowing plea. And from the son's side, we know only too well how weak that plea sounds by comparison with the power of the crowd, the lights, the freedom. 
In the movie, the bystanders laugh too at the ridiculous mother and at the, a little at the boy, but mostly with him because they know if you are young and learning to be hip, then a silly-sounding, overbearing mother is just a cross you have to bear. In 1973, I would have been at that concert, a part of the crowd, and I know what happens next. When the boy goes in the Coliseum and the lights go down, and I know that all of it was glamorous and that part of it was evil. The glamour of it gets you interested and draws you in. There is some fear of getting caught, but no thought of getting hooked. But from those first moments forward, the laws of chemistry take hold altering the brain, the brain you are supposed to think and feel and pray and love with. The ruination of that brain, that gift, is what I'm calling evil. After the thrill is gone and you have become obnoxious to the crowd, obnoxious to yourself, you are reduced to a shadow of the man you would have been had you lived as your maker and redeemer had intended. And it is such a waste and sad and tragic. A little later, I said this. A word now concerning hope. Hope springs eternal for good reasons. Even as a force of nature, hope runs strong in human beings. I enjoyed the Arts Center's World of the Pharaohs exhibition. I saw it twice. Judging from their artifacts in the face of death, the Pharaoh's world was filled with hope. The afterlife seems almost to have been taken for granted in that society. I have a theory about that, which occurred to me on my second walk through the exhibition. My theory is that vivid near-death experiences were common then, as they are common now, and that these had been shared, accepted, and incorporated into a worldview where earthly life is just one stage within a continuing reality. In other words, I think there was more beneath those ancient hopes than wishful thinking. I'll never forget the first man I knew who talked to me about his experience of death. This was in Fort Smith about 25 years ago, now 35. The man had been a longtime alcoholic who could find no solution to his problem. In despair, he finally took a gun and fired a bullet into his own head. Medically, he died, but only briefly. In that time, he had an experience of heaven. When, against the odds, he was revived to life, he had been utterly transformed. By the time I met him, he was one of the most solid, ha happy, faithful human beings that I have ever known. The pure hope that springs eternal comes with the gift of God to us in Christ at Christmas. Christians remain hopeful in the face of the reality of evil, even when evil gets the better of us sometimes. This is because the gospel gives us to expect it. We read the New Testament and find that the powers of darkness are evident at every turn. And we also see that fierce as they are, they have met more than their match in Jesus Christ. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. End quote. Balanchine was the greatest ballet master who has ever lived. His greatest ballerina 
Suzanne Farrell was his muse. He loved Suzanne, and he wrote ballets with her in mind. The first in 1965 was Don Quixote, with Balanchine himself as Don Quixote and Suzanne as Dulcinea. Years went by, and in 1980, in failing health, Balanchine cast Farrell in David's Binder Latanza, a love story with a tragic, tortured edge, as she describes it, a dying man's metaphorical farewell to romantic love. This dance for her was poignant and painful. Its theme was death. But one year later, in a new ballet called Mozartiana, the last Balanchine would make for Farrell, the theme was heaven. Balanchine's health had deteriorated badly, and Farrell knew that this ballet might have been his last to write. The day he told her that she would be in it, she sat down to listen to the score. She was surprised and moved to hear music that she had known all her life, Mozart's Ave Verum, which she had sung in church as a child. She was stirred by the realization that this piece was now re-entering her own life. That night she went to sleep and had a vivid dream, described in her book, Holding On to the Air. I was in a place of all tall spires, there was a kind of shattering, prophetic, organ-like sound, and I was walking on the vibrating spires upward from one pinnacle to another. It wasn't precarious. My footing was very stable. I was holding on to the air. As I climbed, the light got brighter and brighter, wider and wider, until finally I could see, really see. In a dream, she tells someone, this is Mozartiana, the answer to all questions. And now, the ballet, and I'd like you to imagine Caroline, restored, perfected, dancing in Farrell's role. The curtain rises in silence and reveals four little girls in black dresses and pink ballet slippers. They form a semicircle. And in the center I stand, one foot pointed behind, arms rounded to my side, head bowed. With the lifting of the curtain, a ghostly breeze fills the stage. The quiet sounds of Mozart's Ave Verum begin, and I feel the draft touch me. Slowly my head rises, propelling me up onto point. I beret forward opening my arms, palms slightly upward. I hover about the stage in a series of the simple, quiet gestures of prayer. Ave, ave, verum, corpus, natum ex Maria Virgini, veri passum emulatum in cruce por homine. Hail, true body, born of the Virgin Mary, sacrificed with nails on the cross for us men, Cleanse us by the blood and water streaming from thy pierced side. Feed us with the body broken, now and in death's agony. After this, the lights brighten and the ballet processes through a series of solos, a pas de deux, and variations. The light brightens more and more. The pace accelerates towards an exhilarating consummation. 
a finale for the whole ensemble that Farrell calls the most brilliant, exultant dancing Balanchine ever devised. If, for Farrell, David's Bunderlatanza had ended on a note of ineffable sadness and desperation, now Mozartiana ends on a note of superhuman joy. It was as if, she writes, these last two ballets trace the progression of Balanchine's knowledge and feeling in the face of death. He saw not blackness, but rather a beginning, a lightness. This ballet, says Farrell, had extended the spectrum of her own life. She felt reborn and that she had only now, at the age of 36, I think, begun to dance. Balanchine, she realized near the end of his life, had given us a vision of heaven as he interpreted it from the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. And it was a very beautiful piece indeed, a place past desire, where dancers perform for the glory of God. My dream of climbing spires was answered, she says. Mozartiana was the light. May Caroline dwell forever in that light.